Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, good afternoon. I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the show where I listen to lots and lots of podcasts and then share all the best stuff with you. Coming up today, a powerful history of whiteness and race in Scene on Radio. Then, audio-rich stories from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. You're listening to Kerning Cultures. Product placement on the food chain. Do baddies ever get to eat branded food? Most brands would always rather be with the good guy than the bad guy. Finally, the legendary record producer Rick Rubin and podcaster and writer Malcolm Gladwell chat to famous musicians about their craft in Broken Record. I'm having a conversation with myself like, okay. If I do a clean fill, maybe he won't find me 20 bucks. So then I... Oh, I got away with that. And if you want to recommend a good podcast to feature or just next time you hear something good, then please do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. A white guy takes the idea of whiteness in modern US society and uses it to explore where our ideas about race come from and what they mean today. It sounds like a pretty bold, maybe even foolhardy move, but John Bewin didn't let the scale of the project or its potential for controversy put him off. Over 14 episodes of Seeing White from the show Seen on Radio, the former public radio reporter turned academic, enlists prominent historians, thinkers and writers, and also his friend Dr Chenjerai Kumanika, who offers up some perspective from a person of colour and calls out any of Bewin's cultural blind spots. Here are a few early clips from the series that really stood out. And maybe, you know, of course your book starts thousands of years ago, yeah. but... Here's a thought I had about the starting point, Mm -hmm. which is um, when I was in high school in Minnesota in the late 1970s, I I can still remember very vividly in my social studies textbook, the three races of man. And I can see the images of the mongoloid, the caucasoid, and the negroid. Uh Um, It was presented as a scientific, biological fact. That's right. That's right. Sort of like, the, you know, yeah. there's certain kinds yeah. of rocks and yeah. here's the map yeah. of the world yeah. and then these yeah. are the three races. Yeah. So um, is it a scientific biological fact? <laughs> 
the three races um, in the order usually presented, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, Caucasoid at the top, uh, is not a biological fact and only became science in the sense of anthropologists said that this is true in the 1940s. That's Nell Irvin Painter, historian, Princeton professor emerita, and author of The History of White People. I'm John Bewin, it's Seen on Radio. Welcome to part two of our series, Seeing White, looking at the past and present of whiteness in the world and especially the United States. Where this idea of being white came from and what it's for. In this episode, we're going back. Well, not really to the beginning. Science now tells us that in the beginning of the human story, people evolved in Africa from one common ancestor a couple hundred thousand years ago. We're all kin and all African if you just go back far enough. Over time, some people walked out of Africa and spread across the world. The branches of the family that spent thousands of years in colder places without a lot of sun, they lost much of their melanin and turned a bunch of different shades depending on the conditions where they were. That's how we became a species ranging from the darkest brown to the lightest pink beige and everything in between. Shades of brown with an array of yellowish and reddish tinges. All of that explains why people look different. It does not explain the wildly inconsistent and ever-changing groupings that people have concocted over the last few centuries. It doesn't explain my high school textbook. So we believe we need to know how we got this thing called race, if we're going to understand racism. Suzanne Plissick is with the Racial Equity Institute. The team is based in Greensboro, North Carolina, but travels the country doing anti-racism workshops. I recorded Suzanne and her colleagues a few months ago in Charlotte. REI's courses are not diversity training. Their approach is not kumbaya, let's get along, let's tolerate one another. Instead, they drop a whole lot of knowledge, especially history, but also sociology, biology. We know, for example, since the Human Genome Project, that we are what percentage genetically the same as human beings? 99 point what? Nine. 99.9. Genetically the same. There is more genetic variation in a flock of penguins than there is in the human race. There is more genetic variation within groups that have come to be called races than there is across groups that have come to be called races. Statistically likelier that I am closer to you genetically. Suzanne, who is white, points at a black man. Than I am to you. And then a white woman. Anthropologists finally say, and it is way past due, that race is anthropological nonsense. Is that the same thing as saying it's not real? No. No, because it's real. It is powerfully real. It's politically and socially real. So we need to know how did we get it, and what we say is we constructed it. 
That's from part two of Seeing White, called How Race Was Made. And here's how John Bewin introduces the sensitive topic of slavery in episode three. Oh, now, Miss Scarlet, you come on and be good and eat just a little. No, honey. I'm going to have a good time today. We Americans are notorious for not knowing or caring about history. It's a generalization, forgive me, history buffs, but it's a fair one, isn't it? On the whole, Americans care a whole lot more about tomorrow. Forget yesterday. Yesterday was so long ago, for one thing. Get over it. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom. Is that you reading, Kizzy? <laughs> Uncle William, it was only a trick. <laughs> that said, most of us do have a general picture in our minds of American slavery. Our schools teach it, and the antebellum South has made recurring appearances in massively popular novels, movies, and TV series. But well, don't split up the family, Master. You ain't never been that kind of man. Please, Master. Mr. Tom Moore owns Kizzy now. Mr. Odell will take her away today. Some portrayals of American chattel slavery have been more unvarnished than others. But I've no understanding of the written text. Don't trouble yourself with it. Same as the rest, Master bought you here to work, that's all. Any more, I'll earn you a hundred lashes. But unless you've really gone out of your way to duck the reality of it, you know. Still, how often do we actually let it sink in? How recent it was, and how monstrous. The people who called themselves white, people who looked like me, claimed the right to own the people they called black, to buy and sell and confine them like livestock. Well, no, not like livestock, as livestock. Asserting utter dominance over them and their children, generation after generation after generation. And they met the unending and inevitable resistance from those enslaved human beings with waves and waves of violence. And slavery wasn't just some idea imported to the US and then imposed by early English settlers. It was a result of some very deliberate decisions made by US lawmakers. Here's Suzanne Plissick from the Racial Equity Institute again. Let me ask you, when, when people began to immigrate to this hemisphere from Europe and from Africa, in the 1400s, 1500s, and early 1600s, did they come identified by race? No. What was a likelier identification? Religion, so, religion a little later in that period, but first of all, it would have been country of origin, so your nationality. So you came as an Englishman or a Dutchman or an African. Suzanne says whatever ideas were floating around in early colonial society, about African and European people, there were no official distinctions. Some Africans were free, some were indentured servants, same as the English colonists. Historians say indentured servants from Europe outnumbered those from Africa in the colonies until the later 1600s. It took a bunch of steps to get from those relatively loose beginnings all the way to hardcore chattel slavery confining only people of African descent. How did it happen? We're going to look at some of the key steps through a few noteworthy and revealing stories. 
Story one, Punch, the one who tried to get away. In the colony of Virginia in 1640, an African indentured servant by the name of John Punch runs away from his servitude. John has figured out that this wasn't what he imagined it to be. Interestingly, John doesn't run away alone. He runs away with a Dutchman and a Scotsman. They are all indentured servants. They are all living in identical circumstance. So they band together and run away. This does not go well. Now they don't make it. The three men are chased down and caught. And a very interesting thing is recorded in the colony of Virginia. The Dutchmen and Scotsmen are given four additional years of servitude as punishment, one to the master to whom they're indentured and three to the colony. But the African is given what we see codified for the first time as perpetual servitude. The judge tells John Punch that unlike the two men from Europe, he will labor for his master for the rest of his days. What have we written down? Slavery. Slavery. Some Africans were already effectively enslaved in Virginia by 1640, but the Punch case seems to be the first explicit approval of lifelong servitude and the first time African and European people were treated differently in the law. Why was it done? This is important. Suzanne says whether the judge consciously intended this or not, his decision was a gift to rich landowners. The story of race, folks, is the story of labor. They needed a consistent, reliable labor force. And they could not have a consistent, reliable labor force if that labor force was banding together and challenging the authority of the colony. Colonial America was deeply unequal. Most people of every color were poor laborers, farm workers, builders, seamstresses, and those workers were prone to getting restless and pulling out the pitchforks. There were lots of worker uprisings. The disparate sentencing of John Punch was one of the first examples, Plissick says, of what would become an ongoing practice by the rich landowning class and their political representatives. The practice of giving the poor people who looked like those in power, people of European descent, advantages, usually small advantages, over Africans and native people. And what did that do? It switched their allegiance from the people in their same circumstance to the people at the top. It eventually created a multi-class coalition of people who would later come to be called white. It created a multi-class coalition. So this was a divide and conquer strategy. It was completely brilliant. Suzanne Plissick in episode three of Seeing White called Made in America from Scene in Radio, presented by John Bewin from the Centre for Documentary Studies at Duke University. And Seeing White's the second season of Scene on Radio. The third and most recent one is called Men, and it takes a similar approach to gender and the relationship between the sexes. Turning Cultures is a podcast showcasing interesting audio documentaries from the Middle East. 
I've enjoyed recent stories about one man's plan to visit 47 towns called Lebanon in the USA, a potholing trip down the deepest underground cave in the world, and one all about the Arabic version of Sesame Street called Iftar Yasimsim. Here's an example from Dubai, now a futuristic skyscraper-studded metropolis. But people still remember the time not so long ago when it was just a small trading port without an airport, a time when you could just walk out of your house and go and play in the sand dunes. One relic from this bygone age was the Plaza Cinema. It opened up in 1972, but it was torn down for a new development in 2015. So producer Alex Atak tracks down some of the people involved with setting it up. People like Lakshman Bhatia, whose father started showing and renting out Bollywood movies on an old 16mm projector. So to give you a sense of what Dubai or what life in Dubai was like at the time, there was, I mean, there was really nothing. You had to, if you wanted to entertain yourself, you had to create your own entertainment. And so what Lakshman's dad started was kind of an informal cinema club. They post a small board outside his father's tailoring shop and on it had the names of the films that they had available to screen that night or that weekend. So everybody was asking two, three days in advance, what movie are you going to show? It was not just not to watch a movie, also get together also, every Thursday, once in a week. And so as word spread, they started renting out to hotels and hospitals and labour accommodations because films were kind of a vital link back to their home culture. The population makeup at the time was mostly local Arabs, along with a few Persian and South Asian traders. And then there was a small number of British military personnel because they operated the Trucial States under a protectorate. But over the next decade, Dubai changed a lot. And in 1971, the Trucial States, which is what the UAE was called before it was the UAE, unionized and became the United Arab Emirates. And then around that time, a few standalone cinemas started to pop up. There was one called Dira Cinema at first, and that was shortly followed by the Plaza Cinema, which opened right in front of Lachman's house. After these cinemas opened, watching movies in the UAE became much more popular. And that was in part because of the work of this guy. This is Asif Ali Raja, but he just goes by Raja. He was the first manager of the Plaza Cinema when it opened. And he's from Pakistan originally, moved to Dubai in the early 1970s to work for the Dry Docks, which had just opened. He lives in an old part of Dubai in the same apartment he's lived in for years. And we showed up at his door and it just says, like, on the front of the door, it just says Raja in huge letters. Um, And he took us inside and, like, his wife instantly started making tea for everybody. This is my wife. (laughs) This is my elder daughter. He was taking us around his living room, uh, showing us family photographs. This is when I was young. I used to call my... Elvis Presley. It's weird. He really, like, he actually did look like Elvis Presley when he was young. (laughs) And then we sat down and he told us the story of how he became the first manager of the Plaza Cinema. There was this local family and they were looking to open a cinema in Dubai. I came here in 71. I met them in uh, 72. Russia knew them from working at the dry docks and because he was kind of known as somebody who could just make businesses work, they offered him the job as the full-time manager of the cinema. I was like a, you know, good luck charm or something. But he had no experience as a cinema manager. So he went down to the British Council Library, which was in Burdubai, 
and took out all the books he could on how to run a cinema. So I went there, I collected all the books, I started studying about the cinemas. Alhamdulillah, within a few months, it was one of the best cinemas. It was this huge statement piece. It had a 70 millimeter screen and almost 1600 seats. And it was right in the middle of the city center at the time. But there were only a few local film distributors and it was still very much a developing market. So at times, Raja had to literally drive to the airport himself and pick up the film reels. So I was introduced to the director of the customs at the airport. He introduced me to all the big people there. I would just walk in like a big boss, shake hands with the police guys, shake hands with the custom guys, pull it in the trolley, come out, put it in my car and I come out. They were showing films from India and the USA and across the Arab world. One of the first movies to be shown there was the 1972 Woody Allen rom-com, Play It Against Sam. Tremendous poise. I'm an absolute master. But the cinema's heyday was before my time, and I actually never went to it. So I've been kind of piecing this story together from other people's memories, like Lachman and Raja's. But I also went to visit Amor al-Attar, who we spoke to earlier, and he kind of works like an archivist. He calls his studio his treasure trove, um, and it's full of old film rolls and like photo prints and cameras and books and magazines. Everything is to do with Dubai from the 1970s, 80s and 90s. And in his collection, he's got some of the earliest film posters from the Plaza Cinema. I want to show you one of the first posters they showed. This was... So uh, what, we were, what we were looking at was this film poster for a 1973 American film called The Roommates. And it's like... So the front cover is this... It's like highly saturated photos and the, there's one in the middle of this couple kissing and it's kind of surrounded by like photos of kind of like half naked women on the beach they shared more than their room oh my god <laughs> that was yeah. the tagline for the film was they shared more than their room i don't know how they say it it's very <laughs> inappropriate yeah <laughs> when you i mean like when you consider the censorship in dubai now um, it's kind of interesting to look back and see like what was what was like acceptable and like what was allowed. That was fine. Like even my uncle, he told me when we went to go cinema in seventies, there was no much censorship. It was they were showing everything. And he's got like a whole stack of these. Like there's there's a poster for a movie called Sangram, which is a nineteen seventy six Bollywood crime movie about two brothers. Uh, and I, I watched the opening sequence on YouTube. It's this like super dramatic, like super loud, like explosion-y, uh, like high-speed high car chase with guns. And yeah, it's, it's just, um, it's like really of a time in cinema. The 1970s was a really good time in the UAE's history. Dubai has declared itself a free port and grown rich by bypassing other people's import restrictions. Wages for most people were higher than they would be back home and like oil profits were just starting to come to fruition. It was this young, rapidly growing country and there was a lot of development and a lot of hope in the air. Dubai was, Dubai was an exciting place for many people. And as more people moved to the country for work, places like the Plaza Cinema quickly became important community hubs, particularly for the Indian expat community. You see? 
in plaza cinema used screen six shows around the clock 24 hours this is hasan kamal he became manager of the plaza cinema in 2011 usually for blockbusters movie we used to get three four shows packed full can i ask what the community of people that came like? asian people uh, especially tamil uh, kerala tamil nadu then andhra some local people 10% local people you see before it is the cinema is the uh, cheapest entertainment for public low category people even middle class people and business people they want to see the movie as an entertainment and at the time it was also super accessible the cinema was right in the center of town yeah yeah absolutely it's located in in the part of the city called shindara this is yasser el shashtawi he's a scholar and he writes about urban planning and history he used to live in the uae for nearly 3 decades it it formed such an important uh, feature in the whole setting and it also gave it a very sort of south asian or indian character because uh, it uh, played primarily uh, bollywood movies it seemed to me that it played this very important social role in the space and contributed to its uh, vitality as the cinema grew more popular it started hosting these huge red carpet events for movie openings huge queues would snake around the side of the building and big bands of drummers and photographers and press and all these people would be there because it it wasn't just about the movies the building itself was like a hangout spot it was like a meeting point the building itself I and mean, just architecturally speaking is is not particularly exciting or interesting it was just this really uh, large box it wasn't designed by a particularly well known or famous architects uh, hard to say exactly what style it belonged to i guess modernist in in a way but in terms of its social function and what it meant to to the area and its contribution to the life of this area i think that definitely would have been a building that should have been preserved it had value dubai has been described as a sort of transient city a place where uh, people are for uh, a brief amount of time and and they are there to to work and and to make a living and then uh, at the end they would have to leave and so on for the city's low income population particularly those who live in labor camps or marginalized neighborhoods the only way by which they can establish a connection to the city and by extension turn it into a home of some kind is by going through these spaces so these are open spaces that are not necessarily meant for people to come together but they are appropriated by the city's residents in that it enables them to form an attachment to the city Uh, make it a little bit less alien less anonymous it it becomes a much better way i think to connect to the city and to feel an attachment to the city itself alex atak presenting a cinema demolished from kerning cultures produced by alex atak and vanita barawaj edited by dana balut and haber fisher and you can find some images of the team the plaza cinema and more information on where to listen to more and subscribe if you go to rnz.co.nz/podcasthour now
With ad blockers, premium streaming services and set-top recorders, it's never been easier to avoid the adverts in the films and shows we enjoy. So product placement, getting that thing you're trying to sell on screen or even better into the hands of one of the characters, is getting more important. Here the food chain from the BBC's World Service looks into the past, present and future of product placement as a way of advertising what we eat and drink. Food is a powerful narrative device. What we eat sends signals about our values, how much money we have, our social class, even our mood. And this makes it ideal for product placement. Food brands can easily be placed on a set or woven into the story of a film or TV show. So you'd be hard-pressed to find a blockbuster without them. But in this episode of The Food Chain, and other shows are available... I'm going to find out that when food business gets into bed with show business, things can get a little complicated. I'm going to meet industry insiders from Hollywood in the US, Bollywood in India and Nollywood in Nigeria who'll tell me whether filmmakers are putting money before art and how much is changing hands. Including financing put into the film plus Advertising, you could be looking at a tenth of the budget of the film. Plus, when a cool character cracks open a can of a well-known brand on screen, whether you barely notice or roll your eyes, I'll hear why their choice may well be influencing yours. And do baddies ever get to eat branded food? Most brands would always rather be with a good guy than the bad guy. The history of product placement in film is almost as old as the history of film itself. You can see the deliberate positioning of brands on screen in the short motion pictures of the late 19th century, in the silent movies of early Hollywood cinema, and then later in the not-so-silent ones. I always carry two of everything. This is the first time I've ever been out with only one woman. Oh, you mean you take two girls out every time? This is the American film Horse Feathers, made in 1932. Oh, so that's your game. That's your game, is it? <laughs> you can hear Thelma Todd falling into a river, and when she asks for help... Oh, throw me the lifesaver! The, the camera zooms in on Groucho Marx as he slowly unwraps a packet of Lifesavers mints before throwing her one. It's been almost 90 years since Thelma fell out of that boat, but product placement isn't necessarily any more subtle today, depending on where you are in the world. Let's start in Hollywood. I think it's really hard to find Hollywood feature films that don't have food product placement in them somewhere. This is Cynthia Miller, a cultural anthropologist who specialises in film and television studies at Emerson College in Boston in the US. She says we all subconsciously make a lot of judgments about people's social status based on the food they eat, which means food brands are perfect for both telling a story and product placement. When we see food in a film and it looks sexy or it looks exciting or affluent, 
it's very attractive on a subconscious level. We don't necessarily say, oh, wow, I've got to go out and get me some chocolate-covered strawberries. But there's that subconscious message that says, yeah, people who have lives that I would aspire to or that I hold in high regard, that's what they eat. It becomes part of that overall picture of class aspirations, kind of, wow, I want to be that sort of person. If you look back at a lot of 1960s family television programming, you see a lot of product placement of particular brands of bread or cereals, and they're all really associated with a particular kind of lifestyle, values, as well as sort of in the bigger picture, national identity. You know, this here is the good middle-class American family that has these kinds of products. Is this something that the food companies are deliberately trying to manipulate? Does art imitate life, or is it the other way around? I think it's a little bit of both. When we look at kitchens in film, a middle-class family's kitchen is going to be full of what we'd think of as middle-class food. There's the peanut butter and the leftover pizza in the fridge or donuts on the table, things like that. But there's also going to be typically one or two things that look a little bit more class elevated because everybody kind of kind of attempts to move up a little from their own socioeconomic circumstances. Now, when I notice very deliberately positioned food brands in a film, I find it hard to maintain any suspension of disbelief. But Cynthia thinks product placement adds to authenticity. She says for those of us living in consumer cultures, brands are so much part of our lives that seeing them on screen makes us connect more deeply with the characters. And even if audiences are increasingly aware of product placement, it's still effective. Being self-aware makes us feel very smart. And whenever we feel smart, advertising tends to work. We see product placement, we go, ah, I know what you're doing there. And we get very self-congratulatory, pat ourselves on the back, and we've cemented that product in our minds. And... The next time we're in the stores, we are buying that. In fact, I think our contemporary media awareness has actually made it easier to be more obvious because it's like this inside joke that everybody knows. It's, yep, we're putting this right under your nose again. Here it is. What do you do if you don't like the sound of all this? You don't want to be sucked in by it. You've just said if we are really smart about it, all we end up doing is reinforcing that brand even more in our brains. So is there anything we can do if we don't want product placement to work on us? Wow, that's a really good question. (laughs) And I, I hate to be fatalistic about it, but I think our awareness of media strategies helps a lot. But at the end of the day, we are still consuming the media and it's going to have such a powerful influence that it's really, really hard to avoid. Do you think that we need more regulation in this area? It obviously varies a lot from country to country already. I'm not sure that regulation is a good thing. It's a very slippery slope. 
of who gets to make those decisions. And there's there's a point of, okay, we want to protect our youth, but those decisions are only the beginning of being able to regulate further down the line and make decisions about what people can be exposed to and what's good for them and what isn't. I'm not so sure that's a good idea. Do you have any worries about product placement, though, particularly when it comes to junk food and the fact that a lot of the products that we see in our films are high in sugar and salt and fat? I think it can be problematic. And I was just thinking about this the other night, actually watching uh, one of the many police procedurals on television and noticing that all of the female characters are model thin. And one of them picked up a bag of, of chips and dumped it in her mouth. And I thought, you know, skinny girl, you do not eat those. <laughs> Product placement doesn't always add authenticity then. But Cynthia told me research shows that even when people are aware of it and annoyed by it, this doesn't mean they'll avoid a brand associated with it. And this knowledge means food companies feel free to saturate our films and TV shows with their products. Emily Thomas on the food chain from BBC World Service. And that's from part of an episode called Is Product Placement Getting in Your Face? Back when music only came out on vinyl, an album's liner notes gave music lovers all this extra information. Lyrics, images, a bit of a backstory. So in the days of streaming and digital music, has something valuable been lost? Broken Record bills itself as liner notes for the digital age, and in it the writer and podcaster Malcolm Gladwell teams up with the legendary producer Rick Rubin and former New York Times media editor Bruce Headlam for long-form interviews with famous musicians about their life in music. The very first episode was with Rick Rubin himself, all about his experiences producing acts like the Beastie Boys, Johnny Cash and Run DMC. Since then, guests have included David Byrne and Nile Rodgers. There's also a funny one with the comedian Dave Hill about his love for that well-known musical genre, Norwegian black metal. Here's the DJ and drummer Amir Khalid Thompson, a.k.a. Questlove, who became famous with the influential hip-hop group The Roots. And Rick Rubin's trying to find out how he developed his distinctive drumming style. I think if you if you didn't have the training that you had in the precision before you couldn't do the drunk style as as well as you do. You're right. I don't I think it's I don't recommend people and you know that's kind of crazy that you say that because even now young drummers are on YouTube going to the top of Mount Fuji to learn the fanciest thing. And I tell them all the time like you gotta go to first grade first. You don't start off getting your doctorate. My dad was a notorious he loved that whole James Brown, I'm finding you five, ten dollars for that role. You know, my dad's doing oldie stuff, so basically all of his stuff is all the same, like and in my head, you know, I'm doing this at twelve. At twelve. And I'm having a conversation with myself like, okay, if I do a clean fill, maybe he won't find me twenty bucks. So then I Oh, I got away with that. And then when the bridge comes, then I'm like, okay, I'm going to do something like. 
And already, 10, 20, up. I'm back here. <laughs> like, he will not, my father did not hesitate ever to just, he wouldn't even look at me. You just look at his right hand, and if he flashed a five, five, 10, 15, 20. That's where I really got my disciplined chops from, not wanting to have my salary at the end of the night. <laughs> Thank God for your dad. Yeah, man. As well as drumming for The Roots, Questlove also has done all kinds of other rock and roll stuff too, DJing at White House parties for Barack Obama, supporting Bruce Springsteen. And he's also got a regular TV gig on The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. When The Roots first got The Tonight Show, like the first day where we had to sit in front of each other and rehearse, that was one of the hardest musical moments of my life. Like, I actually stop rehearsal after like three minutes and call my manager like yo it's kind of weird man what do we do because literally we've had a relationship as a group for 18 years where it's just like sound check three hour show we never rehearsed so to be facing each other and trying to figure out how to be creative was so hard for like the first two weeks and then we got over that quickly and then noticed like oh we're really good songwriters together because previously we were doing the, the white album thing. Like, okay, here's my song. Uh, let me hear your song. Yeah, I got a bridge for that. Let me hear my song. So now like we're writing songs together, but then it's, it's also being in those close quarters enabled us to actually be friends again. One of the, one of the weirdest things I saw, we, we opened up for the chili peppers in Italy at a soccer stadium for the 90,000 people. And there was a part after the third song on the show, those four got in a, a magic circle. Like, Chad came from behind the drum set, and they all came in a magic circle. And I was like, okay. The audience is cheering, and it's like three minutes, and then they go back. By the fourth night, I was like, why don't they just have a set list? So I went to Flea, and I was like, yo, what do y'all talk about when y'all get in that circle? He's like, oh, man, we're just like grateful, man. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, dog, we're just an L.A. band, you know, in front of a soccer stadium of 100,000 people, man. I said, oh, you're not talking about the show or anything? He says, nah, man, we're talking about, like, dinner that night and remember that riff we did in rehearsal? Like, we just take three minutes out to be grateful for this moment. So then I went back to my manager. I was like, yo, they're, they're not even talking about anything deep. They're, they, they're just talking about that. And he's like, oh, that makes sense. I was like, that's not silly to you? He's like, well, yeah, they like each other. You guys don't like each other. And that hurt me so bad. I'm like, we like each other. He's like, dude, you have a Slither and a Gryffindor bus. You guys traveled separately. You don't talk to each other, da 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 You got to be friends in order to, to get that sort of magic back. And then seeing them do that, then that really retooled our relationship with each other. And then the third part was that just personal rehearsal time. Like now that we have a, a steady job and I almost feel like I've robbed our fan base for 18 years because I've learned so much in these past 10 years of doing the show that I didn't know. I got educated on how to make music, how to be a band, how to be a better musician in these past 10 years that I didn't know between 1992 and 2008, which is weird. Amazing. It's amazing. I'm not giving back it's, refunds it's either. 
it's funny. It's funny when you say that about the Chili Peppers in the circle. It's like you you said they weren't talking about anything important. They were actually talking about the only thing that was important. Had they only been talking about the show, it wouldn't have mattered. You know, they they were interested in something higher. Let's say. yeah. I, I didn't realize it at the Beautiful. time. I get it now, but I I didn't realize that then. Questlove on broken record. And after Tom Petty died in 2017, Malcolm Gladwell spoke to his fellow presenter Rick Rubin about his work producing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in the early 90s. We started making Wildflowers, which is the album in question, and part of him getting out of his MCA deal a record early was to deliver a greatest hits record, and part of delivering the greatest hits record was to add two new songs to it. And it's hard to write a song to fit in with the greatest songs you've ever written. It's just a difficult task. Almost every time that happens, it's it doesn't work out well. And um, and we were already working on Wildflowers. And Tom very wisely said, you know, I feel like what we're making here is a very specific body of work. And even though we're in the middle of this, if we have to do songs for the Greatest Hits album, I'd rather do them separately in a separate studio and kind of think of it as its own thing. So while we were set up at Sound City working on Wildflowers, we set up at Oceanway with slightly different band. The original drummer, the Heartbreakers, was in that session, not in the Wildflower sessions. So it was the, the entire original Heartbreakers. And we did two songs, one of which was Last Dance with Mary Jane. And that was on the greatest hit. So it was like to write a hit to order for the greatest hits album was an unbelievable feat. And then we also recorded at that time with those with that band, maybe I want to say we probably recorded about 50 songs just because they were such a machine of a band. They had been a band their whole lives. Uh, have you seen the uh, Peter Bogdanovich documentary? No. Really worth seeing. It's like four hours long. And when you watch it, you're you're awed by how many great songs he has. Like one after it's like, how can there be this many good songs from one person? You don't you don't put it together that it's all him. So the band had been a band since they were in high school together. All knew each other. They knew a million songs. They used to play cover songs. So because we had the band in the studio, and I think Tom was kind of having fun. Once we got the the heavy lifting out of the way of getting the song we needed, he said the second song would be a cover song, and he thought it would be this thunder thunderclap Newman song, which it ended up being. But we recorded, as I say, about fifty songs to choose from. Fifty, probably. How unusual is that? It's a, not a lot of bands can do it. It's like it's you have to be really good to be able to do that. But those songs, many of which ended up, there was a white box set called Playback. Most of those songs were on playback, so it wasn't just for... I mean, we didn't know that. We didn't know they'd ever come out. It was just sort of having fun. But while they were in there, we thought, let's take advantage of... Let's just play a bunch of songs. What was... How did they write music? Was it very collective? No. It was usually Tom with an acoustic guitar, more often than not, would write a song by himself. Then he would often make homemade demo with a drum machine and put on the parts that he wanted. So... More often than not, there would be a demo that sounded like a less professional version of the final that we would bring to the band, and then 
that would be the the starting point that we'd work. He's for. writing music and lyrics. Everything. 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 Yeah. So now he... the other members of the band contribute a tremendous amount, but the initial framework was always set by Tom first. On occasion, Mike Campbell would bring in a guitar a guitar idea first, or maybe even a guitar based song, and then Tom would take that, rework it, and make it into a Tom Petty song. But probably one or two an album, maybe. Rick Rubin speaking to Malcolm Gladwell on Broken Record, produced by Justin Richmond and Jason Gambrell for Pushkin Industries. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now, as well as Broken Record. This week we've been listening to Scene on Radio, Kerning Cultures and The Food Chain. And as ever, please keep those listening recommendations coming through to me at pods at rnz.co.nz and I'll feature as many of them as I can on future shows. So until next time, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you! Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.